Hey, everybody. This is Chris Melanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. This is Temporary One, a song written by Christine McVie and recorded live for Fleetwood Mac's chart-topping 1997 album, The Dance. Though that album, taped in front of a studio audience for an MTV special, consisted largely of old Fleetwood Mac material, Temporary One was a new song, co-written by McVie with her then-husband, Eddie Quintella. The Dance album was a chart-topping quintuple platinum smash. Temporary One was only a number 99 hit in Germany and no place else in the rest of the world. Still, the song's chorus is very affecting. It says, the sea that divides us is a temporary one and the bridge will bring us back together. You might think of it as an update of the Fleetwood Mac classic, The Chain about bridging a bond that can never be broken. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to expand on those episode topics, and enjoy some trivia. This month, I'm pleased to welcome a music scholar and a good friend. Alfred Soto is an assistant teaching professor of communications and media advisor at Florida International University. He was the features editor of Stylus Magazine, and his work has appeared in Billboard, Pitchfork, The Village Voice, The Miami Herald, and Rolling Stone, among other publications. He runs the arts blog Humanizing the Vacuum, and his piece, An Appreciation of Christine McVie, Poet Laureate of the Morning After, appeared on Billboard.com in early December. Alfred Soto, welcome to The Bridge. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about Christine McVie. You know, toward the end of your encomium on her, you wrote, quote, she had a detachment from her own achievements. Being the sane one in Fleetwood Mac was like a cabaret act, unquote. I love that line. How do you think she embodied sanity in that group? Well, thank you. So unless you're Elton John or Tori Amos... <laughs> It's easier to project sanity if you're sitting behind a bank of keyboards, right? Because you're you're limited terrestrially to that to that spot. So good point. It's not that that Christine McVie was always sane. After all, she's always been honest about her own drug and alcohol intake, right? Which is probably as substantial, let's say, as Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham's, and certainly McLeodwood's. But really, other than an unfortunate dalliance with Dennis Wilson in the late seventies, early eighties. She didn't really date high-profile men and was very comfortable staying out of the spotlight. And really, after a tour or an album, she would disappear into her garden and you wouldn't see or hear of her except for an intermittent solo album every 12, 13 years on average. Uh, and that would be right, yeah. Yeah. And that would be the end of Christine until Philip Mac came to Colin. Yeah, and even when you include her first marriage to John McVie, I suppose he qualifies as a late 60s rock star when yeah. she marries him, but he's the most unassuming, least high-profile rock star 
and what remained the least high-profile member of Fleetwood Mac to the end. These two people who almost deliberately wanted to be wallpaper, and right. just just trusting the ability of you know that metaphor, the colors and the textures of what they were able to do, and let it speak for themselves rather than than promote it. Totally. So speaking of the late '60s, I went deeper in this episode than I personally ever had before, researching Christine's history coming up in that British blues rock scene of the late '60s. I knew only a little bit about Chicken Shack and how she came to start playing on Fleetwood Mac records. So how vital do you think that whole British blues rock movement was to the then Christine Perfect's emergence? I mean, could she have developed in another time? Or was that part of her sonic fingerprint? Well, in a sense, when she was Christine Perfect, she was lucky. The England in the late 60s was a real second period for blues revivalism. So her debut album, an eponymous one, was a product of its times, right? But she also, her rise coincided with the singer-songwriter movement. So instead of striking out solo like, you know, Laura Nilo, Carol King, or of course Joni Mitchell, she sublimated her aesthetic drive into a band. So she could have risen if she had waited two or three years later, 71, 72, during the era of tapestry. Blue and, and for the roses, but she also had this rich blues background from the late 60s. So she was able to find a niche in Fleetwood Mac by putting her legs in both, both camps. I love that you brought up the singer-songwriter side of it. There's a sliding doors version of Christine McVie's career where she doesn't join Fleetwood Mac. She tries to be a singer-songwriter, but I think there's a an attention-seeking vibe for people like Carol King or Joni Mitchell. That I don't think Christine McVie was wired for. I said in the episode that it was my impression that she liked being in bands. Yeah. And I think for her to, to have spent the early 70s not writing songs for Fleetwood Mac like she did, but trying to be a Carol King type or a Carly Simon type it probably wouldn't have worked for her. Would you agree? Yeah, and as you as you were talking, I was sitting here thinking about first the British singer-songwriter scene in the late 60s, early 70s for women. Right, and I'm, right. And I'm sitting here trying to think who would have been the equivalent of a Carole King, Laura Nairo, or Joni Mitchell in that era. And it's, again, I'm sure one of our listeners will correct us, but I'm hard-pressed there's nobody with that profile, right? Because no. the singer-songwriter movement, it's a, it's affiliated with Laurel Canyon. It's very American. It's not as if there weren't British singer-songwriters, but right. it, it had a, a very American stamp. And so, in a way, it makes a kind of sense that Christine, she does this one solo album, and then she sort of sublimates herself into Fleetwood Mac and lets that be her vehicle through all those fallow years. Yeah, and maybe because the macho presence of the of these blues guys in the 60s in England. I was just thinking someone like Linda Thompson, for instance. Good call. She only worked for a while with Richard, her husband at the time. And McVie, for most of her career, she she worked with the boys. Even her right. 84 solo album, which we'll talk about 
there weren't any female musicians on that record. She did not promote many female artists. She liked being with the guys. In fact, the only time she ever produced somebody else was a singer-songwriter named Robbie Patton. Very early 80s, a guy with whom she co-wrote the Fleetwood Mac hit "Hold Me" from 1982, and it's a sort of a generic album, sort of generic late 70s, early 80s pop album. But it's a guy. She wasn't like Stevie Nicks, who was a guy's girl, but also very much a girl's girl. You know, and to go back to that early 70s period where she was sticking to Fleetwood Mac. You know, one of the things I appreciated about your remembrance of McVie for Billboard is your deep dive into the early 70s and the work she did for the Mac back then. So for you, what are some highlights for those who may not be familiar with this pre-Buckingham Knicks period? And, and how did McVie put her stamp on the band's sound? First of all, these have to be the ugliest looking albums uh, of all time. I mean, those, those... The covers are terrible, most of them. <laughs> I agree. These sleeves are dreadful. And when I was a record shopper in the mid-late 90s, and you'll go through the nice price bin of your mall record store, you would always see Penguin and Mystery to Me. Mystery to Me in particular yeah. has the ugliest album yeah. cover. It's just this hideous cartoon of a monkey on a beach or something. It's the strangest thing. Yeah, and even Heroes Are Hard to Find has this emaciated Mick Fleetwood. And it's, what are you guys doing? Right. So... It took a long time for me to dip into those records, and it was when I had exhausted the Buckingham Knicks period, and I knew the Peter Green period, too, and I said, well, mine as well. And surprisingly, there are some jams on a lot of those, a lot of those records, and I'm, I'm particularly fond of Bear Trees, which for me is the best of that interstitial period between Green and the arrival of Buckingham Knicks. I agree. And not only that, I'll just say briefly, it's got the nicest album cover. And yet, yes. as I pointed out in my episode, the album cover gives you no hint. You look at that album cover. I remember looking at it as a teenager as I'm flipping through the Fleetwood Mac bin at the record store and thinking, this must be a dour, right. stark album. And it's really not. It's kind of a pun punchy, yeah. almost poppy record. And it's just got this beautiful, stark album cover. Oh, totally. And even still, there, there is a wintry vibe to some of those songs, particularly the ones written by, by Danny Kerwin and Bob Welch, who are the two guitar songwriters in the band. But my favorite McVie song on that record is Spare Me a Little of Your Love. which is a classic ballad that she could have written in 1982 or 1992. Penguin also has a track called Remember Me. Which has this R&B chug that presages what she do later with uh, Say You Love Me. You can see the sonic DNA in the two tracks. Mystery to Me has Why. Which I may have mentioned in the, my obituary. It's probably the best demonstration of what the two Bobs in the band, Bob Welch and Gwen Weston, could do when they were jamming with the McVie. Um, they, they, they sort of create a space for her. And it's looser in a way that Fleetwood Mac ever wore again, which tended to be very tight and more interesting. Very pop. Very pop and very produced. You made an interesting point about the interplay with the Bobs. And really all the guitarists, Danny Kerwin 
everybody who passed through Fleetwood Mac. This only reinforces your point about Christine as liking to be with the boys. She wrote material that could be coded female, not to stereotype, but then she wrote these bluesy jams that sounded right when these ace guitarists that Fleetwood Mac had cycling in and out all played well on. So she really, she kind of wrote for a band of hotshot, in this case, male guitarists. Yeah, and... She fit right in. I, I suppose if, if you want if you want to get into gendered criticism, at the time Bob Welch was more of the mystic in the band. It's that blues background that gives her material a, a male and female point of view. It sort of codes both genders. So you can you can easily really imagine does. yeah, you can easily imagine Danny Kerwin singing Frame Me a Little of Your Love or or why, because it's not really written for a female voice. And yet she sang them and so it they had a female voice. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Bucking the Knicks joined the band. She and the rhythm section functioned as a reminder of their UK blues background, right? And then plus, she also wrote exquisitely about the morning after, right? And there's that's a two-pronged approach, right? Because there's the euphoria, the euphoric come down, right? Epitomized in a song like Warm Ways. I can't sleep. on the eponymous Fluid America record. It sort of conjures tangled sheets and warm pillows after a very, very good night, if you know what I mean. So, but also she wrote about the wine-blurred aftermath, right, when it doesn't go well. And the track that, that nails it for me uh, is on Tusk. On its third side, it's called Brown Eyes. Thanks to its sort of blurry, watery production, it, it's almost as if she's it's about a character who's had too much to drink, has been crying too often, and is waiting to pass out. Just is waiting for hmm. that, that eighth glass of wine to counteract the coke so that she can just fall down dead on, on the bed. So she's able to conjure these, these two states quite explicitly. And that actually makes her more human than Buckingham and Nick's. Because they were the they were the stars, and they, because they were the stars, they pitched their their material at extremities. Whereas she was in the middle, writing as a human being for other human beings. You know, one other thing, I'm going to call this combination Buckingham McVie rather than Buckingham Nix. Doing this episode gave me a deeper appreciation of Lindsay's professional relationship with Christine, their voices and their sensibilities right from that first Fleetwood Mac album with him blended so well. I mean, why was that? Is it simply because they just didn't have baggage the way Lindsay had with Stevie or was there a key to their chemistry? Well, that she and Buckingham had no baggage is purely speculative. Uh, We will never know. We will never know with with these people. We will never know a combination of uh, what love roundelay um, they enjoyed, right? Maybe something happened they that it will remain forever a mystery to me, no pun intended. But there's there's no question that from the beginning, and Buckingham was always to his credit, honest in saying he genuinely admired her as a songwriter and genuinely loved working with her. And it's an appreciation that deepened over the years. So from the very beginning, they were writing together. In fact, there's a song called World Turning on the eponymous 
75 record that is maybe the closest they came, Buckingham came to writing an early 70s Fleetwood Mac blues jet. Um, and you, you gotta think maybe that's him trying to fit in. So it's an awkward sort of tra transitional track, but this again, purely speculative. McVie's contributions to that song was pulling it in that blues direction. But then you think about something like, Think About Me, the third single from Tusk. And even though that's a, that's a credited solely to McVie, she and Buckingham share the, the vocal. And it's this crunchy pop rocker that really should have done much better in the charts than it did. I think it peaked at 22 or 23, something like that. And it's a perfect melding of voices and a sardonic attitude that you don't usually hear from, from McVie, but it's most welcome. And then probably for me, in that early phase of their career as with, with Buckingham Knicks, the track that most epitomizes what they were able to do together is Hold Me, the hit from Mirage, their 82 album. When they reissued those records in the mid-2010s, they included demos. And you can hear McVie's piano demo of Hold Me, and it's very similar. It's, it's got this, she doesn't have all the words figured out, but the melodic structure and the chords are all there. Just slip your hand inside Come on and hold me, hold me, hold me like a good man should. But there is something undeniably missing. Right, it sounds like it could have fit perfectly on Mystery to Me or Penguin in that form. But what Buckingham does is, you know, add, add several layers of guitars, again duets with her, and then double tracks her vocal, so that it's it's beefed up and Technicolor in a way that she never was before 1975. So finally, there was those tracks that she actually co-wrote with Buckingham on Tangle the Night. She has this rather fierce guitar jam called Isn't It Midnight that sounds like a two songs sort of grafted together, but it totally works. And this static bobble of a song called Mystified, which sounds like it's sort of floating under, under like liquid perfume or something <laughs> and it's and it's hard to tell who contributed what she's singing the chorus and he answers it but again a perfect melding of their abilities and then of course he didn't have any hand in writing it but think of the production on little lives Right. That's a song I cannot imagine in a piano demo form. That sounds like a studio creation. What he's able to do with, including himself, the three vocalists, is sort of, to me, extraordinary. There's not a song in the late 80s that sounds like it. You know, it's got those chimes. It's got that call and response thing layered with Nick's, McVie, and Buckingham. And it's probably the best 
showcase for what each of them brought to the band as a singer. Forget as a songwriter instrumentalist. Right, because even even Stevie has a, a key backing vocal on that and she's unmistakable on it. It's like all three of them have a presence on Little Lies. Absolutely. And as a kid, that was a part Stevie Nicks's part was a stood out because it was so nasal. It was who is this person? And if you go back to the extended versions of these songs included in these reissued editions of the albums, the extended Little Lies has a longer Stevie Nicks part. Interesting. She starts improvising. You can tell what Buckingham edited out. She's going like tell me lies. Whoa, sweet little lies. And it and it's it's she sounds great, actually. It's an alternate universe version of that song. Tango in the Night in general, I came to reappreciate. I loved it as a teenager. I played it to death when I was a teenager. And I came to reappreciate it doing this episode as like the ultimate Buckingham McVie collaboration. Stevie doesn't have much of a presence on that album. Yes, she scored a hit with Seven Wonders on there, and it's a fine hit. But really, the superstars of Tango in the Night are obviously Buckingham because the record started as his solo album and then morphed. And then McVie because she brings these killer songs and yeah. not just Little Lies. It's, again, as you pointed out, Isn't It Midnight, which was a big AOR hit. It's Mystified. And then, of course, there's Everywhere, which I love and which seems to have the longest legacy of almost any, certainly any 80s Fleetwood Mac song. It, it doesn't beat, you know, Dreams or, you know, Go Your Own Way from the 70s. You know, between car commercials and you know, radio footprint everywhere, which only peaked at number 14, just seems to have this legacy. And, you know, the word I use, and I'll admit I borrowed this from a critic at uh, Pitchfork, is Balearic. And I hear its echo in so much 21st century music. You know, I hear it in MGMT, Electric Feel. I hear it in Vampire Weekend. I hear it in Tame Impala. I mean, is that Buckingham's production or is it McVie's sensibility? I, to your point, I kind of don't know where one ends and one begins. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's got me mystified. Uh, it's it's amazing how <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how it, it's it's had this longevity. And Paramore has a really great cover of it too. In the late 2000s, early 2010s, you would, I would go to these rooftop parties in New York and in Chicago, weather permitting. And at some point in the evening, you would have these mixes coming along. And, and a lot of those Tangled in the Night tracks appeared. You would hear Seven Wonders a lot. That's the Stevie Nicks single. But everywhere and a very tusk song called Never Forget, which was remixed by the electro duo Cut Copy. They appeared a lot and everywhere because it has those vaguely Middle Eastern, you know, synthesized, you know, arabesques. Balearic is a perfect way to describe it. It sounds like something that you would have heard in Ibiza uh, at some points, whether in 87, 88 or, or now. But to answer your question specifically, that's her melody. And it's it's the one track on Tangle and Night on which she's credited as a sole songwriter as opposed to collaborating with Buckingham or with her boyfriend at the time, one Eddie Kitella. And it's got that classic verse, chorus, verse, right? And and it's got that high that high end vocal, which she was still able to pull off at that point. So it's a tribute to her classical songwriting chops that she's able to. I shouldn't, I wouldn't say survive, but all, all Buckingham did was magnify 
an already impressive track. To go back to something you said earlier, McVie only recorded three solo albums in her entire lifetime. One in the turn of the 70s, one in the mid-80s, and one in the 2000s, which even she admitted was not her best work. No. And the only one that was really a hit was the one, you know, in 1984. I mean, did she need a band, I, I guess is the open question, because she didn't seem to want to do solo records, even though she scored hits off that 84 solo record. Well, the short answer is yes, she really needed a band. And I should say that on that 84 solo record, she had a hell of a band. She had Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, Ray Cooper, uh, and then Fleetwood and Buckingham themselves playing a couple of tracks. And it's the one album people might know because it has her one solo hit, Top Ten Song, uh, Got a Hold On Me, from Spring 84, I believe. And I listened to it when I was writing the obituary and as I've returned to it intermittently, very intermittently over the years. And every time it's on, I think, what a nice album. <laughs> what a pleasant listening experience this is. And then, and, But as you're listening to it, it sort of evaporates, right? And she's working with top-notch players and the thing sounds terrific in that mid-84 sort of way. But it's something about her vocal modesty and the way she sticks to that tried and true verse, chorus, verse that makes that album and her the experience of listening to her solo in general such a staid experience, right? The one track I like on that record, again, I think it's the only track on which she's credited as a sole songwriter. It's called uh, The Smile I Live For. It's the last track. And I like it because very unusual for Christine McVie, she takes a, a piano solo. Huh. It goes on for about 35, 40 seconds. The song sort of just stops. And it's this beautiful moment of grace. And I wish she did something more like that, both solo and even in Fleetwood Mac. She just wasn't either allowed to or, or it didn't occur to her to do it again. Maybe she felt about piano solos the way Ringo felt about drum solos. You know, he only does that one in Abbey Road, and he grumbled that he didn't like drum solos. Maybe Christine didn't like piano solos. Who knows? That is a very good point, and that's true. So, you know, speaking of people like Ringo, who's often called underappreciated for his drumming genius, so many of these Christine McVie obituaries and eulogies seem to regard her as Fleetwood Mac's unsung hero. Is that overstated, or is she underappreciated? Well, I, I thought I'm thinking of that line by our colleague, Rob Sheffield. He once wrote about Neil Young's album, Trans. He says it was so underrated for so long, now it's overrated. And that might be the case with Christine McVie. The other point to keep in mind is that, as we know from reading these rock biographies, stars work hard. To be a star is to be the hardest worker on the planet, you know, from Elvis to Beyonce. That's just the way it is. And I think it was Bono who said that too. And sometimes you don't even know half of what they're doing behind the scenes. And Stevie Nicks wanted to be a star. She made it clear on one of the demos included in the expanded Tusk for Sarah, uh, her 79, 80 uh, top 10 hits. She says, I want to be a star. At one point, improvising on the microphone. I want to be a star. 
It's not that McVie didn't want to be a star, because it actually takes some talents to be that understated, uh, to use the word. It's that maybe she didn't want to work as hard as uh, Nixon and Buckingham. She began as a blues singer-pianist. That's what she wanted to be. I think that was her ambition. She wanted to be a good songwriter, backing up some great musicians, being another voice in a band of equals. And knowing one's, I, I shouldn't even say limitations, but knowing one's strengths is a kind of confidence too. And maybe that keeps one from being a star because a star is supposed to be ridiculous. A star is allowed to flop ridiculously. And Stevie Nicks, God bless her, you know, I own every solo album. And, you know, there were garish moments on those records, uh, on those solo records. And Christine McVie does not have one garish moment ever. She's incapable of garishness. And maybe it's to her, our loss that she was never garish. But there's a whole lot to gain, too. I mean, in this, this war chest of incredible songs. Well, Alfred, this has been a wonderful conversation. I hugely appreciate you taking the time. Again, I loved your Billboard piece. And uh, your writing in general, for those who are not aware, is very prolific, uh, especially for your blog, Humanizing the Vacuum. What's the best way for folks to keep up with you? Well, thank you. This was, this was a genuine pleasure. And what you've done has inspired me to want to go back and listen to those Billboard Mac records again. Likewise. Yeah. You can find me on Humanizing the Vacuum, my blog, as you, as you mentioned. I'm also on Twitter uh, and uh, Soto Alfred. You can hit me up there, and I'm always floating around on the interwebs at some point or another. Alfred, thank you so much for joining us on Hit Parade the Bridge. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Now comes the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining me from Seattle, it's Ben. Hi, Ben. Are you there? Hi there. Now, I understand that uh, you've not only listened to all of our Hit Parade episodes, but you have a mega playlist of songs that you've picked up from Hit Parade. Can you tell me about that? Indeed. It's a bit of a running joke uh, with my wife and daughter that as I come out of an episode, I become an intensely curious explorer of all things related to that episode. So it's predictable on an almost one-to-one basis with your episodes coming out. That warms my heart. Now, I have to ask, have there been any episodes, we've done 64, I think, so far, where you thought, I'm not interested in this artist, and then you did a deep dive on them anyway? Well, Chris, it pleases me greatly to say we both feel the same way about Bon Jovi, and I have not (laughs) done that subsequent deep dive. Bless you. But I will say... I think your uh, your connection to the charts, whereas I'm more of an album guy, has sent me down deeper into some rabbit holes than I would have gone. I think the uh, the uh, Killing Me Softly Queens of R&B episode is a good example. And we oh, ended up great. actually seeing Shaka Khan last summer live as a result, which was awesome. Oh, see, now that just makes me so happy because Shaka deserves it and you're listening to some great music. So beautiful. All right, we're turning you on to some good stuff. Yeah. Well, 
I think you know how this works. We're going to do some trivia now. I am going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of our forthcoming episode of Hit Parade. And then at the end, you're going to have the opportunity to turn the tables on me and ask me a trivia question. Are you ready for some trivia? I'm suitably daunted and ready to go. All right, here we go. Question one. In our last episode, I revealed that Christine McVie was Fleetwood Mac's top hitmaker, writer of the most Hot 100 hits for that group. What was her highest charting hit with Fleetwood Mac? A. Say You Love Me. B. Don't Stop. C. Hold Me. Or D. Little Lies. I believe that is Little Lies. And I'm sorry, the correct answer is B, Don't Stop. McVie's hit from Rumors and future Bill Clinton campaign theme song reached number three in 1977. Both Hold Me and Little Lies reached number four. By the way, Hold Me held there for seven long weeks. And Say You Love Me peaked at number 11. Off to a hot start. Off to a hot start. Tough break on the recap trivia, but now we've got to preview trivia. Are you ready for that? Yes. Question two. What 1994 album was the top-selling disc of 1995 with 12 million in sales that year alone? A. TLC, Crazy Sexy Cool. B. Boys to Men. Two. C. Pearl Jam, Vitalogy. Or D. Hootie and the Blowfish, Cracked Rear View. Okay, this is a good one. I am going to, uh, I'm going to admit there's a bit of a guess, but I'm going to go with D, Cracked Rear View. And you are correct. The correct answer is indeed Cracked Rear View. The South Carolina band's major label debut spent eight weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 album chart and spun off three top 10 hits. It started the year certified gold and finished the year 12 times platinum. All right, you're one for two, making a comeback now. Question three. When Hootie lead singer Darius Rucker reached number one on the Hot Country Songs chart, how many years had it been since a black soloist did so? A, 12 years. B, 23 years. C, 25 years. Or D, 46 years. So I'm pretty confident that previous artist would have been Charlie Pride, but I'm not as confident on the year. I'm going to guess, um, I'm going to guess 25 years. Actually, no, I'm going to change it midstream. Real surprise coming. I'm going to go with D, 46 years. You sure about that? Uh, like I said, I feel really good about 25 years. I think it's a very confident <laughs> guess. I'm going to let you go back to your original answer because you had it right the first time. The correct answer is indeed C, 25 years. When Rucker's single Don't Think I Don't Think About It topped the country chart in 2008, he became the first black soloist at number one since Charlie Pride scored his final chart topper, Night Games, in 1983. I couldn't resist. You had it, and you even had Charlie Pride right. I couldn't let you miss that one. So uh, I feel like that's powerful teamwork, Chris. I feel good about what we did together. I, I feel good about it, too. I'm giving you that one. As far as I'm concerned, you're two for three. All right. Now's your chance to get a little revenge on me and ask me a trivia question. Do you have something for me? Excellent. Yeah, and I'm going to go back to your two-parter from uh, December and January here. Great. I was really curious about how often the Billboard year-end number one single coincided with the Grammy's recognition of their year's best song. So said a different way, how often is the biggest song by one measure the biggest song by the other? So going back to the first year of Billboard naming a year-end number one single, there were five times 
where Billboard's number one is also the winner of the Grammy Song of the Year and the confusingly named, at least for me, Grammy Record of the Year. So what was the first time this trifecta took place? Is it 1970, Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel? Is it 1959, Volare by Domenico Maduño? 1978, Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb? Or 1968, Hey Jude by The Beatles? This is a great question. And I'm glad you clarified that you're going for the trifecta of both record and song of the year. By the way, for those who are curious, the Grammy for record of the year is for a recording, song of the year is for the songwriter, and the number one song of the year. I think I alluded to this in my episode for December. First of all, I'm pretty sure Shadow Dancing never won record and song of the year. I think it went to, I think at least one of those prizes for 78 was won by Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are. I know Bridge Over Troubled Water, I'm pretty sure it swept for 1970, so that's a good guess. For 68, I'm not sure that Hey Jude won. In fact, famously, I think the Beatles only won song of the year for Michelle of all songs. So it's between Simon and Garfunkel and Domenico Modugno, and I think Domenico Modugno... Did he have the number one song of 1958 of the whole year? He did, because I counted it down, and he won both prizes. So I'm going to say it was Domenico Modugno. It's flawless reasoning. You got it. And you sussed out my fakes. The actuals are Domenico Modugno, as you said, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, uh, Betty Davis Eyes, and Rolling in the Deep. Rolling in the Deep has the additional amazing factor of having come off the Billboard number one album of the year and the Grammy album of the year. So that's a complete sweep on any measure that year for Adele. That's amazing. This is a great trivia question. Hit so many touch points for Hit Parade. So I can tell you are a longtime listener and fan. So uh, props to you for that question. That was a real bit of a teaser for me. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you went two for three. So it was a victorious day for both of us. Excellent. I feel good about the outcome and uh, appreciate the chance. All right. Well, Ben, thanks so much for joining us on Hit Parade the Bridge. Thank you so much. Take care and be well. So, as those last two trivia questions indicate, our next episode of Hit Parade is going to be about Hootie, Darius, and the search for a genre. One of the most improbable blockbuster successes of the 90s was Hootie and the Blowfish, a South Carolina bar band fronted by a black lead singer that played jangly alt-pop. That singer, Darius Rucker, built a career that is one of a kind. Rucker's tastes growing up were eclectic, as were the influences on his young bandmates. By their own admission, Hootie and the Blowfish were heavily influenced by R.E.M. and 80s indie rock. By the time Hootie got signed in the early 90s, the pop crossover of alternative rock was in full swing. Cracked Rear View, their album, took a year to catch on, but then it dominated the charts. The story gets even more interesting after Hootie fell off. Darius Rucker's career is a prime example of how chart success is a product of musical trend. On his solo debut, Rucker tried to become a neo-soul star. Then he tried his hand at country music, even though Nashville had not produced a major black solo star since Charlie Pride. 
So our next Hit Parade episode will trace this improbable journey, the role that Rucker's band played in mainstreaming alternative rock, Rucker's effort to find a genre to call home, and how he finally became a chart conqueror again. This episode of Hit Parade The Bridge was produced by Kevin Bendis, and I'm Chris Malanfi. Keep on marching on the one. <laughs>